Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. But when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, because we have put our faith alone in him, then every time that we confess our sins, simply acknowledging to God what we have done, Because of our position in Christ, because of what he has done for us at the cross, then we are instantly forgiven and we can move forward in the Christian life filled with the Spirit and in right relationship with God. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we have to study your word, to have a copy, a translation of your word in our laps, the entire scripture, all 66 books of the Bible, revealed through the Holy Spirit to the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, and that we have your whole counsel, the mind of Christ, to guide and direct us. Father, let us not be forgetful of the fact that this is a rare privilege in history, It is a rare privilege even in the day in which we live to have uh, such a tremendous amount of biblical truth available to us. And Father, as we study today, may we be mindful that this is eternal truth. That what we study today, even though much of it relates to future events, has principles and application for today that is just as vital for us in our spiritual life as it will be in the future when these things are fulfilled. Father, we pray that as we study, we can focus, concentrate upon your word, and God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us and to challenge us in areas of our own application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The end time is characterized by the culmination of all of the hopes and dreams of fallen man against the plan of God. It is that time in history when 
God is going to pull back all restraint on man's uh, hopes to establish himself independently from God. And in that process of pulling back those restraints, that we are going to see in the end times a culmination of the failures of all of the systems of what the Bible calls worldly thinking, what I often refer to as cosmic thinking, to demonstrate that man on his own can never achieve peace, stability, happiness, that on man on man's terms can never find real joy, real success, and that ultimately all the human systems which have been de- designed to try to bring any sort of stability to the wor- world are doomed to failure. And this becomes very clear in the first four judgments that are announced in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we're introduced to these four, first four sealed judgments under the guise of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in 6.1 we read, I saw, this is John speaking, I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now that last phrase should be translated, he went out conquering in order that he might conquer. It is a purpose clause. So it reveals that the purpose that occur of this final judgment is to allow one to go forth who will uh, execute a conquest in the attempt to unify the kingdom of man. And this he will come close to doing by the midpoint of the tribulation where he will institute a global government. Now, as we study the characteristics of the Antichrist that we've been looking at the last uh, several weeks, we see how various trends today will ultimately be fulfilled in that time, in the world government of the Antichrist, in the way in which he conducts his world government, and in various principles related to that uh, worldwide tyranny that comes into effect during um, during the seven years known as the Great Tribulation. Now, these trends that we see today are just pale reflections of a lot of the things that we will see in the Tribulation period. Too often, as I've pointed out, we see people who look around and they look at passages such as Matthew uh, 24 in the first 13 verses talking about there'll be wars and rumors of wars and there'll be famines and earthquakes and uh, pestilence and all these things and try to correlate that to, to today. And we, I pointed out that in the context of Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the signs that will precede his coming so that those, uh, those different events, the wars, the earthquakes, the famines, the disease, all of that is not related to the trends in the present church age But these are the things that occur during the first part of the tribulation. They will make the earthquake disasters we see today pale in comparison. They will make the wars that we have seen pale in comparison. The bloodshed 
that occurs and the violence that will occur in the wars that take place during the tribulation are much greater than anything that has been seen in human history up to this point. The disease, the pestilence, won't be just localized, but will be worldwide. And as we continue our study in the first series of judgments, the seal judgments, we learn that a quarter of the earth's population will die during this first period of time, which is somewhere between two and two and a half years in length. In today's numbers, that's about one and a half billion people that will die in a very short period of time. Recently in the news, we've seen uh, reports from the earth, this earthquake that occurred in China. We've seen reports about the numerous deaths that occurred as a result of uh, the typhoon that hit Burma. And these are just localized disasters. It was just uh, two or three years ago that we had uh, Katrina that hit New Orleans. But what we see in the tribulation period will be events of this nature that are global in scope, that are happening continuously all over, all over the earth. And the result will be that billions die in a very short period of time. Now, <clears throat> as we look at this first seal judgment, the emphasis is on this, this world leader that will arise and that will form his kingdom. Now, understanding him is important. Understanding what the Bible teaches about the Antichrist is important because much of Revelation and the events of Revelation and these wars that occur are stimulated by his leadership and his attempt to unify the kingdom of man over against God. Now, what do I mean by the kingdom of man? This idea can trace itself back to the period after the Noahic flood. After Noah and his sons and their wives came off the ark, there were a total of eight people. Within just a few hundred years, the, rather than uh, their descendants scattering, filling the earth as God had commanded them, a large number of them uh, gathered together in a location in what is now modern Iraq, near the city of modern or ancient city of Babylon. And the remains are still there. There are still Arab villages there, as I pointed out in studies related to Babylon in the past. And, and there they decided to erect a tower in opposition to God. And the idea behind this tower was that man on his own would unite the human race and establish his own kingdom over against God and in opposition to God and hostility to God. And you get the sense out of Genesis chapter 11 because it comes just a short time after the worldwide flood where God has judged humanity that this is man shaking his fist in God's face saying that you're never again going to destroy us. We're going to build this huge tower to heaven so that no matter how many floods may come, we will survive on our own and we don't need you. And that is the thrust of the mentality of the kingdom of man, the arrogance of man. And the arrogance of man is toxic because arrogance always produces disaster. And this is exactly what has happened every time man has sought to unite himself against God. And throughout history, there has been a restraint from God on the extent 
of man's evil. And during the church age, that uh, restraint is directly related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the church age, which is primarily manifested through the church, because every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior is instantly indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, sanctified, set apart as a temple for the indwelling of God the Son. But at the rapture of the church, every person who has put their faith alone in Christ alone, every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior in the church age, will be instantly taken to be with the Lord in the air. He doesn't return at the rapture to the earth. He only returns uh, for his bride, the church, in the air. And this ends the present church age. Then, as we've seen, there will be a period of transition. We don't know how long that will last. Could be a few months, could be a few years. And it is in the midst of the uh, chaos that I believe will come as a result of the rapture and the removal of so many believers from the earth that uh, one particular individual will rise, and especially in the West, coming out of the old Roman Empire, that territory, and he will begin to coalesce power around himself. And this is the person that we refer to as the Antichrist. So just by way of review, a few points before we go forward. We understand from the Scripture, number one, that the Antichrist is not revealed until after the restrainer, God the Holy Spirit, is removed at the rapture of the church. So when you're at the grocery store and you're reading the Midnight Sun or the the, uh, National Enquirer or whatever you like to browse waiting in line, when they say that the Antichrist has been born, then you know that they don't know what they're talking about. No one will know. He won't be identified until after the rapture. Second thing we saw in our study in uh, in Daniel is that he arises out of the old Roman Empire. This was symbolized in the statue and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had that the lower legs would be a combination of iron, the up, upper the thighs represented the kingdom, kingdom of Rome, the lower legs were made of iron and clay. This comes out of the old Roman Empire. In conjunction with the Imagery in the visions in Daniel chapter 7, these same empires are represented by a uh, lion for Babylon, a bear for Media Persia, uh, a leopard, four-headed leopard for Greece, and then Rome was this terrible monster that would have a lengthy life and come back in a new form at the end of the age. So the Antichrist arises out of this ten-nation confederacy, out of elements of the old Roman Empire. His third point, we saw, was that in his rise to power, he will forcibly take control of, of three nations. There's these ten nations that coalesce for the revived Roman Empire, and then they're, they're pictured as ten horns in Daniel 7. And then a little horn arises, and he... Uh, takes control of three of the horns to gain power, to gain control. And this may be done through either conquest or manipulation. Uh, it's not clear from the text how exactly he does that. Fourth thing that we saw was the Antichrist then will take to himself all authority. He becomes, he establishes, as it were, himself as the basis for all law. So this is referred to as 
uh, the mystery of lawlessness. In Daniel chapter 11, which we studied last time, he becomes the ultimate determiner of all law. We see this sort of trend today that governments become the source of law. Once you remove God as the source of absolutes, as the source of law, then something has to move into that vacuum. And so governments move into that vacuum, and governments become the source of law. Historically, we know that law in the West, in Western Europe, in Britain, in England, all in all of these nations, the concepts of law and the laws that they have, their legal codes, all had a heritage in the Mosaic Law, in the Ten Commandments, in the Old Testament, because of the influence of Christianity in all of these cultures and all of these nations. But recently we have seen the moves by the uh, arrogant anti-God liberals on the left to remove any sort of symbolism related to the historical uh, significance of the Ten Commandments from courtrooms across the nation. And this was uh, seen in court cases seven or eight years ago in Alabama. Also, there were some court cases related to uh, the presence of uh, the Ten Commandments in courtrooms in Texas and uh, in uh, Houston and other places. And this is a t- an attempt to rewrite history and to show through symbolism that law is no longer seen as having its source in God, but its source is in man. Man determines what is right and what is wrong. This is essential to the thinking in the kingdom of man. So the Antichrist will take to himself all authority. He will become the final determiner of laws, of rights, and he will be virtually set himself up as God. We're reminded, especially thinking in terms of United States history on an observance of Memorial Day tomorrow, that in the United States Declaration of Independence, it was recognized that our unalienable rights derived from the Creator not from the government. The government simply recognizes rights that come from a creator. But once you buy into a, an evolutionary Darwinistic view of the world, then you c- can no longer go to a creator as the source of rights because you have done away with the creator. So all of these ideas, all of these systems of thought come together in order to create the kind of thinking in the world today that will be uh, evident in the end times in the Antichrist kingdom. Fifth point that we saw was that the Antichrist's actions make him a de facto God. So he declares himself to be God, to be worshipped, and uh, he sets up his statue in the temple. There will be a rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and he will set him set a statue of himself up there so that people will worship him as God. Seventh, thing, seventh point that I noted was that he's going to have a worldview that combines several elements that are present today. First of all, he, it will combine an, the origin myth of evolution. When you buy into a Darwinistic view of evolution, then this gets rid of any idea of an external creator, an authority that is outside of man, and man becomes his own authority. 
and recent thought, the idea is that man is evolving toward a, the next stage, which is cultural evolution, and it is being defined in terms of thinking, not so much in terms of a physical or biological change. And those who are not willing to go along with this liberal agenda of a one-world government, internationalism, uh, world peace, the mystical elements that are brought into that, are viewed as enemies of progress. And so those who believe in the Bible and in the absolutes of the Bible are beginning to be vilified by various groups and elements uh, in the press, in the scientific establishment, in the in, uh, the education establishment, as those that are the real problem. Those Christians who believe in the Bible, that believe in eternal absolutes, and believe in sin, the, this is where the real problem is. So that is uh, something that is uh, consistent with an evolutionary framework. Second element will be socialism, collectivism, the uh, uh, ownership of all wealth and property in the hands of the government and ultimately in the hands of the Antichrist. And we saw that uh, indicated in passages such as uh, Daniel 11.39, that the Antichrist is the one who parcels out land as wages. He can only distribute land if he owns the land. And ownership of land and personal property rights are at the very foundation of all freedom. If people do not have the right to own property, to control their property, to dispose of their property as they will, then all other freedoms will collapse. So under socialism, there is no freedom. There is simply slavery to the government. And the irony is, is that modern proponents of socialism do this in the name of giving freedom to the people when, in fact, when the government is the solution for all of man's problems, then man must, by definition, be enslaved to that government because the government cannot allow them to have real freedom. Why? Because in freedom, people will make their own decisions, decisions that aren't under government control, decisions that will lead them in different directions. And when people have real freedom, then it threatens the authority and the control of the government. So how does a government exercise control? Ultimately, government exercises control through, uh, through finance through taxation. This was understood by the founding fathers of this country and the emphasis on taxation, the, the danger and the problem of taxation without representation in relation to the British Empire. In fact, uh, we ought to really apologize to the uh, British Empire of that time because the taxes that we're willing to put up with today are much more onerous than the taxes that they were imposing on the colonies back in the 1760s and 1770s. So socialism will be part of this, and secularism, because there will be the absence of a worship of the true God, the God of the Bible. And there will also be the borrowing and, and redefinition of Christian terms. We've seen this with relation to terms such as uh, freedom, 
optimism, hope, liberty, all of these are terms that come out of the Bible, and especially the concept of a kingdom of God, of a future perfect state. This has been co-opted by Marxism and socialism. It's been co-opted by liberation theology and black liberation theology that somehow man, apart from God, can bring in a utopic state. So all of this works into the future kingdom of the Antichrist. We've seen this in our study of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 11, and now I want to pull these things together for us, and I want to skip ahead a little bit in Revelation to the 13th chapter of Revelation. This last week I received a question via email related to the work I had done uh, back in the fall, paper I had written on the identification of the angels in the book of Revelation. And this was from a, it came to me via my friend Tommy Ice, was asked of him. Tommy sent a, sent a series of questions for me to answer. And one of these questions uh, said, why is it that we want to go to the Old Testament to find out the meaning of certain terms and phrases and symbols in the book of Revelation. The Revelation is in, in the New Testament, so why are you going to the Old Testament to find out how certain symbols such as stars are used uh, it, to identify the angels? And I pointed out in my answer that this is a, uh, uh, not an uncommon misunderstanding that people have, is that somehow we can interpret New Testament writings without going to the Old Testament. And Revelation 13 is just a great illustration of how we cannot understand or interpret the New Testament if we don't understand all of the types and figures and symbols that, are, that were revealed in the Old Testament. When you go to books, uh, the great prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, uh, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, you look at the messages in the minor prophets, and it is in those different uh, prophets, those different prophetical books in the Old Testament, that we are first introduced to a variety of these images, especially in Daniel. And what, we, what happens by the time we get to the last book revealed in the Bible, which is uh, the book of Revelation, then what God the Holy Spirit is doing is picking up all of these, as it were, loose strands of revelation and images and pictures that have been introduced at various uh, places before and ties them together for us in the book of Revelation. So we can't just jump into uh, a, a chapter like Revelation 13 and impose upon it whatever meaning we want. These images are grounded in Old Testament revelation. So one of the first things that we see in Revelation 13 is that the, uh, the Antichrist is referred to as a beast. And this idea of the Antichrist being referred to as a beast has, of course, its foundation in Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 13.1, we read, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And we've already uh, been told in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon is uh, the serpent of old, the devil. So this is, shows that the, the devil is the one who is behind the kingdom of man 
and the leader of the kingdom of man, the kingdom in the end times, which is the Antichrist. John records, then I saw a beast. This is the first beast. Daniel, I mean, Revelation 13 speaks of two beasts. This is the first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. So then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. This represents ten kingdoms. And on his heads were blasphemous names. That reminds us that in Daniel 11 we saw that the <clears throat> prince, the willful king, the prince who is to come, will speak blasphemy against God. And then in verse 2 we read, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, this fits exactly with what we saw in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 spoke of these beasts who came out of the sea. The sea is a picture of the Gentile nations. So that when we look at Revelation 13.1, the beast that comes out of the sea, that, that background and imagery comes right out of Daniel 7. The kingdom of man is represented by a lion, a bear, a leopard, and the final uh, und unspeakable monster of the Roman Empire. And so in Revelation 13.2, the beast, the culminating empire, uh, culminating in the person of the Antichrist, the saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. Where did that imagery come from? It comes right out of Daniel 7. The end-time kingdom is going to pull together all of the strengths and characteristics of these earlier manifestations of various kingdoms. Revelation 13, verse 4, we read, and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him. And so we learn that the Antichrist himself, the beast, is empowered by the dragon. In fact, he is going to be, he is indwelt by the dragon. And we have seen that the background for this comes out of a New Testament passage in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false Wonders. The point that I'm emphasizing here is simply that he comes in accord with the activity of Satan. What I'm showing you and what I hope you get from this is that in the progress of revelation, God gives us different pieces of the, of the picture so that by the time we get to the conclusion of the Bible, the picture comes together for us. The, the, the interpretation of Revelation isn't the kind of thing that you go by uh, going out into the desert or going into solitary confinement for uh, several months, contemplating your navel, uh, inhaling various uh, incense or drugs or whatever, and then hoping that God will give you uh, some sort of uh, flash to understand what these things mean. It, it's very clear they fit within the flow of Revelation and all the pieces uh, come together. And it reinforces our confidence in the Bible 
that this is a book that where all the pieces fit together. It's not made up of inconsistencies or incongruities. There's no contradictions. But you have to study the Bible in terms of its entirety and in terms of the, of the whole picture. So we see from Revelation 13 that, the, first of all, that the power base is like the power base described in Daniel 7, the imagery of a, of a bear, a leopard, and a lion. There's the imagery of the ten horns, just as we have in Daniel 7. And of the notice it was ten horns and seven heads back there in uh, verse 2, uh, or verse 1, the, the ten horns and the seven heads. And that the, that's the same imagery we have in Daniel 7 where you have the ten horns and then the little horn rises up and conquers three of them. So that gives you three from ten, leaves seven, just so you got the math down. It all comes together. It all fits together. Then the um, also the emphasis in, in other passages that the beast will be empowered by Satan. And then third, that there will the people at that time will worship the dragon. They will worship Satan as the one who is the ultimate. Uh, power uh, behind the throne, and they will worship the dragon instead of God. And because of that, they will be hostile to God. Uh, Revelation thirteen six: the Antichrist, the beast, opens his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And this is indicated also in Daniel 11:36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So he is hostile to God, and that hostility to God is going to bleed over into a hostility to those whose allegiance is to God, those who worship God. And as we will see, this leads to the Antichrist making war against the saints. And in Daniel 11.37, uh, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Uh, <clears throat> let me skip down to Revelation 13:7. I will. It will also be given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He will amass worldwide power, worldwide authority, and he will make war against the saints. And in Daniel 7.25, we're told, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years, as we have seen. So what happens in the end times is that the Antichrist will begin to make war against all who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. He will make war against the saints, 
And as we will see when we get to the fifth seal in Revelation 6, that this will result in mass execution and the martyrdom of millions of Christians. And I believe that what will happen as God's judgments began to come out onto the earth and that the people began to recognize that these are God's judgments. Some will turn to God, but as we have seen, the vast majority are going to turn against God and lift up their fist, shake it in his face, and they are going to blame God for everything that is happening. And so then they will begin to blame all of the uh, believers for what is happening. And in that process, once they begin to blame the Christians for what is happening, then they will begin to persecute them, they will begin to imprison them, and they will begin to execute them. We already see trends of this type taking place in different uh, Western nations in our time. We see the this is done under the guise of uh, laws to prohibit hate speech. And as such, certain minorities, especially uh, homosexuals, who are not a minority like anybody else because that's a choice. It is not genetic. Nothing has ever ever, no matter what you've heard, I've done the research, I've read the material, there's no such thing as a gay gene. There is no documentation of any kind of gay gene. There is, uh, uh, homosexuality is a choice, and there's a tremendous amount of literature on that subject, which of course is completely ignored by the media, which has their own uh, agenda. And so as part of hate speech, anyone who wants to say that homosexuality is a sin or is prohibited by God is considered to be as heinous as any Nazi who uh, committed genocide against the Jews in World War II. This is uh, in, also, this kind of law has been passed in Canada. In fact, in Canada, if the wrong person hears you in the privacy of your home, uh, profess the truths of what the Bible says, then you can be thrown in jail guilty of, of hate speech. And this is the same kind of legislation, fortunately, was voted down in Congress this last year, but if the wrong majority gets in this next year, one of the first things that will be passed in the national legislature will be a hate speech law. And let me give you an example of where this goes. Just this last April, just over a month ago, in the last uh, week of the uh, annual session of the Iowa State Senator, uh, Senator Matt McCoy, who is a Democrat and the first openly homosexual to be elected to the Iowa State Senate, uh, had a personal attack on Chuck Hurley who was not present. He's not a Chuck Hurley is not a member of the state Senate. He is the president of the Iowa Family Policy Center. He is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he sent out a letter to those who were uh, part of his uh, ministry, the Iowa Family Policy Center, uh, to inform them about the day of silence that was to be observed in public schools and uh, recognition that uh, uh, homosexuals were an oppressed minority. 
And so he sent out, based on the Bible, he was telling parents that this was going to be enacted in the public schools and gave them guidance as to how they should uh, handle this, instruct their children as to how they should properly uh, respond to this. Well, when he took the floor of the Senate, Matt McCoy uh, branded uh, Chuck Hurley with all manner of uh, horrible intentions. He used a broad breaststroke to connect uh, Bible-believing Christians who recognize that homosexuality is a sin, just like adultery and lying and murder and all of these other things are sins. It's not a special category of sin, but I just wish I'd have a political action group come out and say that my sins were legal and okay. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, we're not picking on any one group, but they want us to enact legislation that their sins are now acceptable to God. So anyway, Matt McCoy branded all Christians who oppose gay marriage and the day of silence as bigots and hate mongers and that it was their thinking that was behind the murder of various uh, young gay men. And, um, of course, it was okay for him to distort the facts and to slander uh, on the floor of the Senate all Christians, but he was very... um, he was very deft in the way he moved from uh, Hurley's letter to, identif- to beginning to talk about those who were involved in these various crimes towards uh, homosexual uh, young men. And by making this very subtle connection between Christian- Christians' opposition to homosexual marriage and these horrible crimes, he then was able to manipulate the Senate to, for those who are opposed to these crimes and this kinds of this awful activity against the homosexuals, let's all stand in support. And by doing it the way he did, almost every member of the Iowa Senate, uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, were manipulated into standing in support of this. And by listening to it, you see how he connects the Christian opposition to all of these crimes. Now, Christianity does not uh, validate any of this kind of hateful, criminal activity against homosexuals or any, any other sinners. And that's not part of Christianity, but that's where we are headed. And there are numerous people in public office who want to outlaw Christianity and Christian beliefs, and this is the same kind of thing that we're going to see in the future. Now, in Revelation 13, uh, 13, verses 13 and 14, we go on to see that when the Antichrist comes into power, his claims to power will be validated by various miracles. We've seen this attested in passages like uh, we just saw a little while ago in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, as well as Daniel chapter 7. And in Revelation 13, 13, and 14, talking about the second beast, the, the uh, false prophet, who will uh, validate the claims of the first beast, it stated that he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. That's the first beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast 
who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. This is the making the image of the beast and then putting that into the temple to be worshipped as, as God. And then finally what we see in, this, in Revelation 13 is that the Antichrist will have control of the global economy. He will have control of the global economy, and we see this in verses 16 and 17. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what this will be, uh, whether it's a tattoo or a computer chip. No one knows yet. But they will be given a mark, and he provides that no one... In light of the context, this is no one worldwide. No one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And the point is that he is going to uh, bring complete control of the economy of all commerce to the, the, his government. And so that the Antichrist is going to seek to completely control the economy. And we already see so many things of this nature in our world as governments seek to control the economy. And, every, and you should note this whenever you watch the news, that every time that there's a piece of negative uh, economic news, then the government is expected to respond and to try to fix it and to fix it immediately. And all they do is make it worse. I mean, numerous studies have shown that if you go back and study what happened at the, with the Great Depression, that all of the government interference by first Hoover and then Roosevelt just extended the length of the Great Depression. Because when the government interferes, it, 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 when you have a free market economy, you have to let everything seek its own level and work its way out. When the government starts interfering, it's out of arrogance thinking that they can control all the factors and no human can control all the factors. No human is omniscient. And that's the assumption behind this is that human beings are, uh, know all the facts, all the details that go into events of this type and can therefore control it. And what it ends up every time what happens is that people lose freedom, they lose economic opportunity, and who do they lose it to? They lose it to the government, and this just further enslaves us to the power of the government. Then this is known as socialism. You have modern socialism today, and you had forms similar to that before. We had modern socialism under feudalism. The uh, aristocracy owned the land. In ancient Egypt, the pharaoh owned all of the land. But it's the when the when the government owns all of the uh, all the labor and all of the resources for production then the people are enslaved. You can't have any kind of, of middle class. And what happened, what we see is happening in our own history in South America, Central America, the Latin countries, is they're doing the same kinds of things that most politicians in America want to do, and the result has been just the virtual destruction of the middle class because as you have uh, rampant inflation from the government uh, printing more and more money, in order to try to control their or to pay off their debts and to try to control all of the details, it makes it renders all savings as uh, irrelevant because the money you earned ten years ago isn't worth anything today, 
because of the inflated value of the of the uh, or the loss in value of the dollar and the inflation of the dollars in, in circulation, and the result is that that the middle class loses the value of its savings. This uh, affects investment. It affects the accumulation of wealth, and it's it's just socialism. And this last week. We all know that gas prices are going up and everybody's feeling a bit of a pinch from having to pay more for gas, but most people don't understand uh, free market economics. They don't understand the international market, and most of the people who who don't understand this happen to be uh, elected officials who reside in Congress. <laughs> and this last week, it was very illustrative to observe uh, the uh, Senate uh, or, or House Committee that was uh, interviewing, grilling uh, the representatives from the major oil companies. And in one particular interview, one particular question where a representative from Los Angeles, Maxine Waters, was questioning the president of Shell Oil. And she, she just got, she got emotional and got carried away with herself, but in doing so, she revealed what she really thinks, and she revealed the, the real agenda of, of the liberals. And just, I'm just going to quote her words, because after she's gotten angry that the uh, president of Shell Oil is saying that it's not their fault prices have gone up, it's an international market through competition, the price of oil is been bid up, and he made a very articulate statement to Dick Durbin about the fact that because uh, there's no free uh, oil industry in the United States because Congress has restricted uh, exploration and development. He's very articulate. I'm not nearly as articulate on these things. He just pointed out that if the U.S. Congress would withdraw all of their restrictions on oil exploration and development in the United States, then we wouldn't have this crisis at all, that it is a government problem. See, that's what happens uh, with the altruistic motives of socialists, is they have these unintended consequences. Well, anyway, so Maxine Waters has lost her temper, and she's questioning uh, the president of Shell, and, she, and he won't back down, and he won't say it's their fault. And she says, well, guess what this liberal is all about? So she identifies herself as a liberal. And she said, this liberal would be all about socializing, and then she stumbled. But she let the cat out of the bag. She's all about, and that's their agenda, is to socialize America. She's just a Marxist. She says socialize, and then she paused, and she's trying to find the right word. And see, the right word was to nationalize the oil industry. And she didn't quite get to that. And after stumbling a little bit, she said what, what this liberal would be all about is socializing or would be about basically, well, taking over in the government running all of your companies. <laughs> so in case you are in any doubt about the real agenda of liberals, it is to destroy freedom. And see, all of this is done in the name of the people. See, the rationale is the people are suffering from high oil prices and high gas prices. So in the name of the people, what we're going to do is we're going to take over the oil industry so we can bring the prices down. Right? Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> Sounds wonderful until you stop and think about the fact that the oil industry, the oil companies are all owned by stockholders. They're owned by stockholders who have 401k plans and mutual funds. And, and so it is the people you're trying to protect who own the company. So 
under the guise of demagoguery, we are going to protect the people by stealing from the people and stealing the company from their ownership and nationalize it. Well, this is the same kind of thing that has to happen, but in a much grander scale in the tribulation period in order for the Antichrist to be able to control the buying and selling, the purchasing of everything. And so the trend of history is pointed in the direction of globalization, uh, larger government, taking away freedom from people and from individuals, and eventually when it all comes to full fruition, it's going to be uh, in the end times, in the tribulation period. And this is exactly as it, if Satan thinks that he can establish his kingdom on the earth, he's got to control everything. And that means no one can have any kind of freedom. Well, when we look at these things, what we realize is that the basic problem is a complete rejection of the five divine institutions that God established in the creation of man. And I'm just going to run through these quickly. Last time I got one out. But this is the key to being able to make good decisions on anything, think through current events. The five divine institutions are, first of all, individual responsibility. When God created man, placed him in the garden, he said, you should can't you need from any fruit of the tree freedom, but you can't eat from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. There are consequences to bad decisions, and no government, nobody else is going to come in and uh, take away these negative consequences. There's no safety net. And when Adam ate from the fruit, he died. Nobody came along and said, okay, well, you're not really going to die. You're just going to be sick. So individual responsibility. And this is, goes all the way through the Mosaic Law was an instantiation of, of this, that you had private ownership of property. How do you know that? Well, you can't very well have a prohibition against stealing if people can't own things. So uh, the, the principles that we find in a free market economy and capitalism are embedded in the scripture and part of individual responsibility, which implies individual ownership of land, which you clearly had uh, in the Mosaic Law and throughout scripture. Second, marriage is between one man and one woman. You don't try to get around it by this, this subterfuge of civil union. Why? See, God established these institutions for believers and unbelievers alike. It is the way God made creation. You can't get around these things. If you do, everything will eventually fall apart. And so when you have people... And in any kind of government, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or whatever they are, if they don't recognize these principles of individual responsibility, marriage between one man and one woman, the importance of the family and promoting the family and keeping the family together because the family is the, the real school, the training ground for future generations, and then human government, uh, that the role of human government is to protect us from uh, protect us from evil, to protect us from criminality inside uh, the the state, to execute justice and righteousness, and then national distinctions. That when we forget these things, everything else falls apart. It doesn't matter what else you want. Who cares if we get national health care if we legalize homosexual marriage? then the infrastructure is going to collapse, and it doesn't matter if you have universal health care or not. Nothing else matters. 
the war in Iraq won't matter because there won't be a country worth preserving. On this Memorial Day, we need to remember what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant with which he swore to your fathers. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. This is part of the Mosaic Law to Israel, but the principle applies to any nation, as verse 20 points out, that when we violate the basic laws of establishment, those five divine institutions, then no nation can survive. They are just the fundamentals of reality. And we need to remember that the reason that this nation has been blessed by God, and the reason that this nation has survived as long as it has is because of the influence of biblical Christianity on the founding fathers of this nation who put into the Constitution the principles that are reflected in those five divine institutions with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you again that we have the freedoms that we have in this nation We are fearful that we are gradually losing them as we see the encroaching tyranny of government. Father, we know that no matter what happens in terms of earthly politics, that you are in control of history and that our job as believers is to study your word, to learn the principles in your word, and to live out our spiritual life for your honor and your glory. Father, we are reminded that on this Memorial Day, that ultimately what we need to remember is the liberty we have in Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. That if you've never trusted in Christ, this is your opportunity to believe in him. When you trust in Christ, you're identified Uh, With him and his death, burial, and resurrection, you receive the imputation of righteousness, and you are declared just, and you have eternal life, which can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the things we studied and learned today, that we might apply these consistently in our own thinking, and as we reflect upon the current events which which go on around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.